like pick the partners to, to interject like a cog in a wheel of everything that we do. It only works having partners if you're willing to listen and willing to give and take. You've got to realize the power of what you have that you're giving to somebody else. Hey, everybody, big treat for you today on the home front. We're hanging out with the one and only Robert Irvine. You know him from his incredible work on shows like Restaurant Impossible, Dinner Impossible, Worst Cooks in America, and Operation Restaurant. This guy is a dynamo traveling most of the year as a tireless supporter of the U.S. Navy. And let's not forget his roots in the British Royal Navy and the Falkland Islands. He's turned around countless restaurants, starting with casino restaurants working for Donald Trump. He now leads a team of over 5,000 employees across his many companies, including his own brand, Fit Crunch. In this episode, we're going to discuss his turnarounds with Donald Trump, getting real with family businesses in small restaurants, and traveling 150 days a year. Sit back and relax and get ready for some great conversation. I promise you won't be disappointed. Our listeners are entrepreneurial people who are at that crux in life where they're trying to figure out, you know, do they take the leap? Do they, do they leave corporate America balancing risk and reward? Uh, it's helpful for people to know your journey, somebody who's been very successful in, in many things. Would you care to go back a little bit to how you grew up and where you grew up? And, and maybe we'll walk through a little bit of your history. I'll try and condense it a little bit, but yes. So I started uh, an interest in food uh, at about 11 years old. Um, I was not a very good kid at school. I played great sports. I was very athletic. I liked history. I liked home economics. I joined a home economics class because there was 30 girls and me. I was the only boy and I thought there's a good chance I get a girlfriend. Made my first quiche Lorraine, took it home to my father who was a British army, a chap and uh, <laughs> very meat and potatoes. Um, he said, well, it's crap. Um, and my, my journey started in food. I was a young seeker at the age of 11, uh, which is basically like your sea scouts here or, or boy scouts, but we go to naval bases, uh, marine bases, warships, et cetera, et cetera. And I fell in love with the food aspect. So I, my mother and father both worked. And I would cook whatever was in the uh, refrigerator or whatever was in the cupboard. Bearing in mind, England is not known for food. It's canned stuff and frozen things and, you know, kind of stuff like that. But I always had a meal prepared while my mother and father came home from work. Um, that was the beginning of my love of food. Um, I always was into sports. But when I left, well, I didn't really leave school. I uh, never really went to school. <laughs> I would actually dress up in a uniform, which was a secondhand, uh, we have Oxfam, you have goodwill here. Uh, my parents were very poor, and that's an understatement. So my mother would go to work, and I would double back, instead of go to school, drink my dad's beer, my friends. One day she called the house, caught me, and uh, marched me down to the recruitment office, and, you know, not being the smartest guy in the pack, uh, five being the lowest on the spectrum, one being the highest from maths and English, I got five, five. But the recruitment officer said, great, you know, imagine he's Royal Navy, I ain't going to be a cook. And I said, well, it's great because that's what I want to be anyway. So uh, off I went 15 and a half years old uh, to imagine he's Royal Navy, Royal Marines, 
and uh, started to do what I love, which was food. Uh, eight weeks of training, six weeks of basic training, how to, you know, march and whatnot, and uh, eight weeks of culinary training. And then I was in the Navy. I was hard at it on a warship. I came out of the military after a total of about almost, I don't know, with reserves, I would say 16, 18 years. Um, didn't know what to do. Went to Warsaw in the West Midlands, got a job in a hotel. Uh, saw an advert in a paper shortly after that for cruise lines in America. Applied for that, went up to London, chatted with a, suit, a few folks, paid some money, and uh, found myself on a cruise ship in America as a sous chef. I uh, was my first contract was six months. Uh, my second contract, I became the executive chef at a very young age, um, and that's kind of what started me off on this this momentous journey. And I say that with tongue in cheek because after many ships, I came off. I went straight to work with Donald. Actually, I went to Jamaica, put two hotels together. And one thing I'd been known for in my whole career is fixing things from a very young age. I put two hotels together, uh, the Renaissance Jamaica Grand, um, uh, and uh, it was called the Hyatt Amalas Beach and the, and the Hyatt Amalas or something like that. But it would it basically put the two together to create the Renaissance Jamaica Grand Hotel, which was a 720-room hotel, um, mainly run by Jamaicans, funnily enough. Even though Renaissance was an international company, uh, I was the only Caucasian. They <laughs> uh, had a chef called Jürgen Heinrich. I was the number two guy. I uh, did a year there and then came back to the States and uh, started working with Donald Trump for four years took their company from 784 million a year in, in revenue, but only 15 in food and beverage and, uh, ended up doing my first year, 83 million in food and beverage reporting directly to Donald Trump. Was, was that across all of his properties and hotels? No, it was only one. It was, it was only one. one. It was one to start with. Okay. Um, and then they wanted to amalgamate. So I went in to do something that nobody else had ever done in that industry, which was buy futures. So okay. I started buying meat, um, seafood, um, you name it, uh, toilet paper. I would, I would buy futures. Um, and as we started to save money, uh, we wanted to amalgamate the services of bakery and, and uh, garmanger and things. So we put a central kitchen together, which I oversaw everything for the four casinos. Um, and it was funny because I was making $33,000 a year. And I went from that to 250,000 a year to four point something million a year, uh, way back when. Yeah. Well, if you can manufacture 60 million in extra profit, you, you should get a piece of that at a, at a minimum. Hey, first timer. Have you been thinking about quitting your job? Do you want to build something of your own, but don't know where to start? Homefront Brands is one of the leading innovators in franchising today. Homefront Brands provides people with the opportunity to fulfill their entrepreneurial aspirations and build a franchise business within the very durable property services sector. Put your entrepreneurial tools to work in a proven business model that is turnkey for you. Click the link in the description below or go to podcast.homefrontbrands.com to learn more. 
gain back control and freedom of your time. Because nobody was doing it. And I, I worked 18, I lived on property. I worked 18 yeah. hours a day. Um, for the first four months of me being an employee of Donald Trump, I literally walked the hallways from 6 p.m. till 6 a.m. in the morning, nobody knowing who I was. I didn't put a jacket on it, and nobody knew who I was. I just had an ID card in case the security stopped me. But I literally listened and watched to everything before I went and put a uniform on and then uh, fired 320-something people. They called me the Grim Reaper. Um, I was there for about four years, and then I did a dinner for uh, Donald Trump and one of his arch nemesis, I would suppose, at Caesars. And at the end of that dinner, the, the, the guy from Caesars slipped me his card and said, come and see me tomorrow and made me a, a, and I was having, I had the best life ever. I mean, I reported directly to the president and to Donald Trump and, uh, I wanted a challenge. I, I, I don't felt I'd achieved what I could achieve there. Um, and I jumped ship. Uh, but once Donald found out, I called him and said, I'm going to leave. I mean, 15 minutes to leave the building, literally. Um, luckily, I'm a smart guy. Working in four years, know that. I packed all my stuff up and left anyway. <laughs> um, did the same thing in another casino there, Caesars. And then I, I try to figure out that, why am I making all this money for people, even though I was doing very well and making a lot of money? Uh, why am I doing it for them and not doing it for myself? You know, I, and I had, you know, probably half a million dollars saved up in my life savings. I had a, a brand new baby, at least, who's now 24. Um, and I was living in a hotel. I didn't have, I had a car, but the, have you seen the movie Roadhouse? I have. I fired 327 people. That car was, was, I left it there in the same parking spot for two years until I, I left. Oh, you didn't want to. I'm, no, you didn't trust car. it. It was, it wasn't even that. They wrecked it. They scratched it. Tires, mm -hmm. uh, windows, you know. But, um, but, but yes, I, I changed the mentality and brought in chefs and, and had, uh, 1135 employees. Um, to play with, um, and change a culture of 5,600 employees. Yeah. And that's what we did over, over a, almost a four year period. I had the best time ever because I come from small hotels from warships, the Navy, uh, the Royal York Britannia, all those kind of things. And here I am running a, you know, a, a multi-unit or multifaceted hotel chain and casino. You know, the, the, the arena was 5,000 people every Friday, Saturday, Sunday, feeding them, you know, right. the show and, and so on and so forth. Um, and re and completely revamped the banquet menu. I mean, you name it, I did it. I worked very hard, um, and, and got rewards for it. After that, I was like, okay, I'm going to do it on my own. I started my first company and, uh, got hired by other casinos to come in and fix them, which was great. It would pay me a lot more money. And I'm like, okay, this seems like a good idea. And that's yeah. how it basically started. Fantastic. Did you get your culinary education in the Navy? Uh, yes. There, did they have a associated with the culinary school? Or what was the programming? No, no such thing. Eight weeks of company training. The rest, you're on a warship. I went to the Falklands, figure it out. 
Yeah, if it's not good, you're in trouble. Well, you know, you're on a warship with 240. Uh, and by the way, there was no there was no females in the British Navy on warships or submarines that that never. You know, it was not. It was it was 240 males. Um, I was responsible for breakfast, lunch, and dinner with a group group of of other 15 people in watches of three. So three people, you know, do eight hours and the other three people, you know, and so on. Um, and it was, it was a great experience. I loved it. I mean, I, it was a great, um, from a person, a young person that was very non-rule conforming, I would say. Um, it was great for me because I had a very, direct discipline you know you're in the military this is what you do this is how you do it this is a salute and this is who your boss is and and you don't talk back and but what i found was if i if i watched and listened and kept my mouth shut and just looked at the systems that were in place i would ask a lot of questions why do we do these things not in the middle of them but at the end i had what i call a sea daddy who was he took me under his wing and and uh he would answer all the questions for me. And I said, well, that's really, that's a really stupid way to do it. You know? So I started picking holes in the whole system of the, of our military. Why is that? Why do we do that? That's stupid. Um, and I had plenty of time cause we were in the middle of the Falklands, you know, sailing six months in the Falklands or, or, you know, wherever. Um, and I started to change, uh, the processes of that military. So, so it was a great grounding um, experience for me. So bad student, uh, questions, everything, perfect entrepreneur. How did you transition to television? It's interesting because when I came out of the Navy, there, there wasn't like in the United States, a transition from the military and it's like, here's you, you signed off, you're done, get out. You know, you do your three years of, um, uh, reserve and that's it. There's no, there's no love like you get here in the United States. So um, I never forget it. I was uh, working in Atlantic City. I do television on the weekends. Um, my first TV show was a local television show that I paid to do, actually. I paid for their time. I got the studio and whatnot because I was getting 3,000 letters a week on how to fix things. So I thought, oh, well, I'll just do a TV show. It, it worked um, every week. Did that for about a year. And... I was doing a couple of food shows. One was in Atlantic City. One was in New Jersey. And Paula Dean was the headliner. And I was kind of the warm-up act. But at that point, I had a cheesecake company. So the only reason people stayed, they were waiting for Paula Dean, but I was giving away free cheesecakes. But I stayed <laughs> on. Um, and one day, Mark Summers from um, Double Dare, you may know him, um, he was doing something. I emailed him. I said, oh, come and watch me do this open for Paula Dean. And if you think I've got something for TV, then maybe we'll work together. He was already doing Food Network shows at that point. He came. He said, yeah, I think he brought something. I just don't know what it, what it is. I said, well, that's really great. The, the, what helpful are you? So he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to write, you know, write out ideas for shows. But while I was doing that, I was traveling, um, with the U.S. military to aircraft carriers, with the first lady from the White House to all the stuff I do to this day. But I was uh, a guest chef at the White House for, oh my God, years before I even started television. 
Uh, so I would go with the first lady over there or the president over there or, the, you know. Uh, so I wrote 13 episodes based on my real life of what I did. Um, Food Network loved it because it was called Fit for a King was its original name. And I would drive up in my seven series with Fit for a King license plate. And I would get on the screen on the dashboard, the mission of the day. It was like Mission Impossible for one yeah. better one. What was the premise of the show? Same thing as Dinner Impossible is to this day. No okay. knowledge. No knowledge. Um, and I'm out of people to feed, no food, and a time limit. And by the way, figure it out. Just like I would do in my normal life. Um, the first one, the first episode, it was a pilot. It was um, in New Jersey at a wedding. And all I had was three dishwashers to help me. Uh, roll up, meet the bride and groom, no food, no equipment. I had a kitchen, but no equipment in it. And these three, three kids. Young. Yeah, how, how many plates did you have to put out? 270. All right. That's okay. 270 people, not plates. That was just the, the people. Mm. Um, and they were called the Knowlton. It was a Knowlton Manor. And I remember like it was just because at the end of it, I was so proud of these kids, although I scolded them the whole way through just being Robert, not for TV, because I needed asparagus peeling. They didn't do it properly. I had to do it three times, taking more time and all this other stuff. Um, and at the end of it, I pulled them all together and we were filming this and I didn't know they were actually filming my end because the show had finished, they had the dinner and all this stuff. And I took them outside and I said, I would hire every one of them people because they were so good and they worked hard regardless of how much pressure I put them on. And somebody filmed it from through a window um, and a couple of the kids started crying and they hugged me and, and, and it was very emotional. Um, and you were still mic'd up. It was, it was really interesting because I'm not that emotional. Well, I am actually in work. I'm not. So they cut the show. It went to food network. They picked it up immediately because it started off as a 30 minute show, which is 22 minutes of real time. Even though the show was eight hours, uh, it went into his first six episodes and the fans went nuts. We came number one Food Network. It went from 22 minutes to 42 minutes. We did 260 episodes. Um, and that was literally 14 years ago, actually 15 years ago. And they took a, you know, it finished after about four years. And then there was a 13-year hiatus and they brought it back. Um, but that was the basis of television. Um, and then they said to me after... 13 years after the four years it was running, what do you want to do next? And I said, I just want to help business, you know? And that's, I wrote Restaurant Impossible way before Gordon ever had his F word, F kitchen, you know, all, you know, kitchen nightmares. And I wrote it and I sent it, mailed it to myself. I mailed it to the Writers Guild and I mailed it to myself. It's still in my box I have at home, never been opened, just a proof of concept with a day stamp and all this. Right. Um, and that show, Restaurant Impossible, was, up until it was just finished now, uh, was 14 years, two restaurants a week for 14 years. Now, have you sunset that show? No, 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 no. No, I've just finished the contract with Food Network. I just uh, signed another big deal uh, with a major network. Um, so there's a lot coming. Oh, congratulations. When I watch you deconstruct a restaurant, it's a couple of things are clear to me. Number one, 
you have a great process to cut through bullshit. And it takes a minute, right? Because you're walking in, uh, you, you, they don't tell you where you're going. You, they're not, this isn't a setup. You walk in there, you've, you've done this, uh, you served, you've been in difficult situations. You've done this in hotel after hotel. So you walk in there and right off the bat, you're just, you're just breaking things apart, uh, to figure out what's, what's true and what's not true. Fair. Absolutely. So there's no knowledge of who they are, what there is. Um, the TV people, there's 42 of them set up the day before they do all that B-roll, they meet the people kind of stuff. Yeah. I have nothing to do. I fly in that afternoon. I go to work out the next morning. I get up at three o'clock. At seven o'clock, I walk in just like you see on TV. I don't know them. They meet. They tell me the story. And then from that point forward, I have to ask questions to figure out where they are. The producers, and that's my fault because I never wanted to know anything because I feel if, if I know something, I prejudge them and I never want to prejudge somebody. I want the real truth and people find that very hard to give. So the reason the show is so successful is because it's real. 48 hours from the minute I get there to the minute I leave. And, you know, I wish I could show you the 48 hours because it's not you see, you see 42 minutes of 48 hours. What, what you won't see is, um, when somebody told me they got raped or the husband couldn't have sex with them and they cheated on them or the, all the things that are life cycles, right? Yeah. Um, the minute they tell me that number one, it gets cut from the tape, but number, number two, I have the responsibility to help them. Yes. Even if it's got nothing to do with the restaurant, because it does have something to do with the restaurant. Your husband cheats on you. If you if you if you got raped, um, it it's it's mental and physically changes your your relationship with your staff, your husband, wife, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we never show you anything that's that, but I have to get the therapist and I have to uh, deal with that because that's what I swore I would do. So once I get in there in the first the first hour. I can pretty much tell you how much in the first 10 minutes, I can tell you how much BS you're giving me and, and numbers don't lie. Right. All I have to do is look at numbers and I can tell you either a pastoral entity, you're stealing money, somebody's stealing it from you, you're paying too much, you know, all of the things that I do, but not only with restaurant impossible, I do that with fortune 500 companies. Now we can get that later, but uh, it takes me literally. In a Fortune 500 company, two days to look at a system or their systems and find out where the problems are, uh, which I do every day of my, my life. But with the restaurant, it takes me like 10 minutes because I'm seen used to, nobody wants to, to shame themselves on national television. Um, but what I try and do is make it easier for them to trust me um, we don't tell them what to say. I ask five questions in rapid succession. They tell me the answers. And by the time I finish the fifth question, they're answering the first one. So they compute, it's an interrogation technique used in the military many, many years ago, World War II. Um, but it works. I, and, I, and I've mastered it because I can do it with any person, literally. Um, and the show goes on. And, and, and what you don't see is, yeah, you'll see the kitchen, you'll see the dirt, you'll see the da da but I'm there for 48 hours. I take a couple of hours off to go to the gym in the morning. Um, but I literally and I let them sleep a couple of hours. 
because otherwise they're no good to themselves. But I go through step through step to break it down, not only output cost, labor, marketing, um, websites, and so on and so forth. Um, and it's a real education. It's, it's the only show, and believe me, uh, you can go online and read all the what we do, uh, because I invited people and volunteers to help me to see it for real, um, including celebrities, to see how real it actually is and how I break the people down to build them up, not to chastise and and demean them, but to to and, and people say, oh, sometimes you're really assertive and rough. And I'm like, yes, I put 48 hours to change 16 years of behavior. Um, so I, and I make no apologies. What's most impressive to me about the show, and I, and I think if you're a casual observer, you could miss it, is it's tough love, but when I see an inflection point in the show, what you say to them tells me that you actually care about these people. Like you have real empathy. It's clear because, I mean, I've worked with lots of assholes before and you, you know, you, if you didn't care, you would say something completely different. But the fact that you, you, you actually care about the outcome for these people. And by the way, I've never seen uh, more businesses than restaurants that have family dynamics in them. Like it's it, when you go across uh, America, small business, painting companies, plumbing, like sometimes they're family businesses, but oftentimes they're not. But restaurants always seem to have the kids or a brother-in-law or somebody's working in there, which complicates things. And, and those kids, those kids and those brother-in-laws don't choose to work there. They do it to support, in my, in my yeah. opinion they, and, and experience, they do it to support their family because they have to. They don't want to work there. Right. You know, I had one girl, 16 years old, wants to be a, um, 18 years, sorry, I wanted to be a nurse. I mean, she, she couldn't go to college, even though she got great education because she had to help her parents. And I'm like, no, you're going to college. That's yeah. it. We're not staying in this restaurant. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think I don't go in and paint around things. If I, when I go in and I design a restaurant on the fly, literally, and then look at the menu, see what's around. I do my homework as, as we're working um, and create something that is attainable to the people that I'm working with. So I could go in there and put in a five-star menu, right? But if they can't produce it when I leave, it makes no difference. They fail anyway. Right. So I have to be really careful of what, what the level of culinary is, what the level of leadership is, what the kitchen equipment is, and then how I'm going to design it to be faster moving. Mm -hmm. words, and great, great food can be simple. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, so I look at that. Um, and even in my own companies, again, we'll talk about that in a minute, but I, 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 we are 96% successful in the last three years of this show. Right. So in fact, I just had one call me literally as I got off the plane here, um, Rosie's in Indiana, the car went through a, a a driver went through the frontage of their that's the sixth time that's happened to one of my restaurants or restaurant possible a car has gone through the front of, which is well, kind of I, I don't know if that's bad luck or good luck well know. they are on the street yeah generally well that's uh thank you for doing the show uh i get a lot out of it and the blocking and tackling of the business is always fascinating to me but it wouldn't be what it is without the underlying 
uh, care and empathy that you demonstrate. It's a delicate balance to do, and it's exceptionally well done. So I really appreciate you doing that. Yeah. So now today you've got uh, 5,000 employees across a myriad of businesses, billions of dollars in sales. What have you learned about leveraging partnerships? Because we can, right? I mean, so I was really, I built a business for 25 years, national disaster restoration business, you know, and, uh, but now in my second or third phase of my career, it's all partnerships because when you scale, you have to, what have you learned, uh, good and bad about partnerships as you've built your empire? Well, I think number one, um, I do, I do not personally have any investors in any of my companies. It's all been built from me. Um, and then I hire people that are smarter than me. That's okay. number one, right? Because if you think you're the smartest guy in the room, there's always somebody going to be smarter. Right? And, and I just watched a show that kind of shows you that. I want you to watch it. It's on Netflix right now. It's called Race to the Summit. And okay. it's, about, it's about two, um, two uh, climbers um, that, that, that literally run up, um, you know, Everest in like 10 minutes kind of deal. But they're rivalry. And it's really important because it, it kind of goes into to why I'm telling you. At the end of the day, you can be faster at anything you want. And it's the end result that, that matters. Um, and in this case, I'm not going to share what happens in it, but it's, it's really quantitative to what I'm, I'm going to tell you. What have I learned about partnerships? Well, first of all, um, when you start your own business, you think you're, you're great, right? You think you know everything about business. You think even if you've worked for somebody else, you think nobody's better than me. I'm going to be the guy. Your ego is through the roof. Yeah. Um, you know. Nobody can touch me. I do everything perfect. That's number one, <laughs> which is all BS, as, as you know. But you feel that way. Yeah. And then as you start to go through business and you start to meet, so most of my business is, is, is done through meeting people at events. I was in an event last night in Atlanta with a lot of technologists. So we, you mentioned a few business, but we have AI, we have technology. Um, I mean, cutting edge technology for restaurants, and stores, and all these kind of things. Um, partners, American Airlines, Samsung, Grubber, Cisco, Cisco Computers, Comcast Business, NBC, all these people that I, that I, and it's really interesting because I picked the partners that, that interject like a cog in a wheel of everything that we do, whether it be television, whether it be business, whether it be internet, earthnet. Right. But you, it only works having partners if you're willing to listen and willing to give and take. And there's a book, Stephen Covey, you know, five, five, seven habits of highly effective people and, and families. Right. I bought all my people at Taj Mahal, my, my mid level manager of that book when I first went in there and said, read it as a test next week. Right. Because you, there has to be a win win situation for, for both parties. Now, what? It could be financial, it could be trade-offs, it could be whatever, whatever it is decided to do. But you have to be able to listen and give in and then take at the same time. That makes sense. Yeah. And, and it's the listening that, that tells you when to give and when to take. And do you have a couple? Yeah. So 
Yeah. Um, so funny when I started, so 11 years ago, um, Comcast business who I've been a partner with for 11 years, multi, multi billion dollar company worldwide now, uh, couldn't figure out how to, um, get into the restaurant space, um, or the business space. And they came to my show, Restaurant Impossible, when we first started, um, or a couple of years after we started, and said, hey, look, we just want to look at what you do. So I went in, did, uh, they, they, it took me a year to do a deal with them. And it was for big money, by the way. You know, it was up there. And they wanted me to, to teach entrepreneurs how to use technology or how to embrace technology instead of a technologist going in there and, and going, blur. And, and the, the mom and pop business were like, well, I, I, uh, what do I need that for? Why do you? So I said, well, you got to dumb it down, number one. And I started the first year. We started doing dinners for small mom and pop restaurants. I would do 100 people or 70 people, whatever, and talk about your, your point of sales and your, your inventory control and all this kind of stuff to the point that, um, you know, here we are 11 years later, and now I, I'm doing it for the Walmarts of the world, uh, the the American Airlines and all those big companies. But I had to, I had to, the first couple of years, say yes, yes, yes. Then after the, the second year, I said, guys, you're missing the boat in, in, in what we're doing with business. If you want to teach business, then we should be going after the Marriott's, the Hills, the, the big companies that then can have a training within their companies to teach this as, as technology changes. Um, because young kids, you know what young kids are. I mean, you use these things now, it's great. Us old people, you know, not as smart. But um, so I, I stood and I said, hey, no, this is what I think you should be doing, which is a complete 180 turn. And they were like, well, no, we don't think. I said, I can prove to you. And I did. I called up a very big CEO and he got on the phone and said, we should be listening to what Robert said because we need this in this company. And by the way, they did a three $3 billion deal with him. Wow. Right. Um, and then the other companies started, you know, Constantina. So I think you've got to realize at that point, the power without being egotistical, the power of, of what you have that you're giving to somebody else. Yes. The information that they're missing. Um, and I do that in my daily life every day, not just. I was with Nax, the consumer show yesterday, with one of our three of our brands. Um, teaching Fortune 500 companies um, how to do business. Um, get them in a room. I do it with with veterans now. We have a, we have a program which we teach veterans how to get into business um, and put them into food trucks and then put them onto bases after in brick and mortar restaurants. But that's another story. That's fantastic. So, so I think I think that's when you know without being again I, I use this without being egotistical. Because there's four, there's four pinnacles of success. One is empathetic leadership. What does that mean? Um, know that, that Johnny has an autistic son or daughter, and he had a hard time this morning because she was playing or he was playing up. You know, that Missy, her son, is sick, you know. And, and the list goes on, right? You have to walk in the, the footsteps of those that work with you. Because once you understand that, I have never made a schedule for people in my life. 
Never. And if somebody says to me, hey, um, you know, I need three weeks off because I can use Johnny, the autistic child is sick. But yeah, go ahead. You've got no worries, dude. Whatever you need. Because once you have the empathy and once the people understand that you care, they'll work three times as hard for you. The next thing is trust. Next one is egos, losing theirs and yours. And the fourth one, fourth one is um, inspiration and hope. What do you give? How do you, you read the book, so you know what I'm talking about. But how, my job is not to be the head of a company. My job is to find my replacement. And their job is to find their replacement. And that's how we run our companies, all 11 of them, in silos. Yeah, there's a lot in the book about leadership and your beliefs around it. And, and I've also heard you speak about one hour of exercise a day and time that, you, you know, what's expected, uh, what you give people, the opportunities, what's expected of them, and then what are the deal breakers and things that you, um, boundaries and things that you won't tolerate. So you, you clearly have a high-performing team, lots of different businesses going on. Can you talk a little bit about your leadership style and, and well, yeah, I, the, I'm, I'm one of these, again, military-driven. So most of my leadership qualities come from being in the military, which, which means there's, a, there's always going to be a boss, and then under that boss is, you know, a bunch of other people, and then a bunch of other people. So it's very layered. Um, I set the expectations and the direction. I don't tell you how to do it because... I want you to engage in your brain. So, so I'm very uh, lucid to a point of here's where I want. This is what I want. This is uh, where I want to be. And you need to give me a timeline of how to get there and how you're going to do it. When I look at it, I say, okay, so talk to me about it. So every business we acquire or we buy or we go into because there's not one company that we don't own, literally, from Manufacturing buildings, the, the property, we own everything. We don't, I don't uh, license my name except to Comcast. That's the only time they license my name. Um, everything else we own, the liquor, the bars, the food, clothing, we own everything. So give me a timeline and a trajectory of where that is. Even new projects today, we just created a new restaurant style for the future uh, for all malls and military. So... Um, I allow you the leeway. You know what they say? Giving up rope and let them hang themselves. Yeah. Because I want them to make mistakes. I don't expect them not to make mistakes. And if anybody tells you that they, they're not going to, then they're full of it because they will make mistakes. But if you let them make mistakes that don't damage them or you, but teach them. Um, I've got a young 34-year-old uh, CEO of 11 companies that does a lot of money. Uh, he's doing my team coffee on a TV set. It's a true story. Um, for years. And then one day he said to me, I can help you. And I said, well, I'm not going to pay you. I'll give you 10% of everything you bring in. He made 100 phone calls every day outside of television um, to the point that I can't tell you his salary now, but it's ridiculous as a 34-year-old. And why? Because he works hard. Um, and, and so do the rest of the team. So allowing them the flexibility 
and creativity to be able to get a job done and sourced. And I give you an example, the president of the United States for the last six presidents, five presidents, six in my term, um, will call and say, hey, we're going to be somewhere. I need you to be there, right? I send a team, make a menu, get on the ground, ready to do a dinner. I don't have to worry about that. I just show up that time that, um, or, or, you know, our manufacturing protein bars. I am, I am so heavily involved in flavor profiles and, and drinks and things. Nothing passes me. They bring it to me. I'm like, no, it needs this, 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 and this. But I've got guys that have worked with me for 27 years. So if I don't trust them, who do I trust? And then what I've done is bringing people smarter than me, as I said earlier, that are, that are heads of companies um, or presidents of companies that, by the way, are older than me, that report to a 34-year-old. Right. Right? Well, age is not, you know, age is not an indictment on your intelligence or your energy or anything else. I've always said that young people are just as smart as we are. They just have less experience. And I would disagree with that. Okay. They're smart as, but they're smart as us. Absolutely. I would agree with, but they have a different experience. Mm. Right. And that's how I think, because, um, if I don't let this young man talk and give me his side of view, it's like a marriage It's a one-sided marriage. It right. never works out. And business is like that. If you don't allow your employees to talk and vent or, or come up with ideas. One of the rules I have is, look, if we have a problem, you can bring me the problem and the solution. Uh, I don't tell you how to do it, but you better bring me the solution. Um, I don't set hours of, of, of work. I know that if I get a call for, from Korea, and I'm in Reno, Nevada right now, if I get a call from Korea, you get in call 10 minutes after I get it, and you have 10 minutes to return my call because somebody's life somewhere depends on that call. And, that, and that's a true statement. I'm not talking about a protein, but I'm talking about somebody's life in our military. So I find loyalty um, is huge to me. And one thing I will not allow in any of my companies is if you have a problem, if I have a problem with you and I, and I back talk you to everybody else, and I don't come to you, you're gone. The minute you talk about somebody, you're gone. I don't care how, how powerful or how big a position you have, because that's military feeling. We don't tread on people. If you get you do your job, you will rise in the ranks regardless. If you do your job and you're a good team player, and, and we look, in, in 16 years, I've lost three people because I choose to, to lose them, right? Because they, they were doing just that. And I will not have anybody infighting or bad-mouthing somebody else, ever. That's, that's powerful. Robert, when you see an opportunity and you, you connect some dots within your businesses and, and you, you see it clearly, obviously, do you define the results or do you define the opportunity and what the outcome looks like and then your team designs the results, uh, timelines, goals, numbers, things like that? I think it's a bit of both. Um, I get given opportunities, I would say, um, that are huge opportunities. Um, I then look at, okay, what is it going to take in realistic to deliver an expectation, right? 
So if the chairman of Joint Chiefs comes to me and says, hey, Robert, I need you to put feeding across the DOD this way, what's the timeline going to be? I'm not going to say, oh, I can do it in a year or 18 months. I have to go away and I really have to give a, a real expectation and think about what does that mean exactly? What is he asking me to do? And I break it down and I say, look, here's where we are. I sit with a team. Once I, once I mentally figured out um, what, what the project is and what the expectation, because you have to manage expectation. And if you don't, then you'll never achieve your goals of being a successful entrepreneur. Because if you, Jeff, say to me, oh, I want you to create the iPhone and I need it in three days, and I say yes, stupid me, right? Silly me, because it's not possible to do that. I don't care how smart you are. But you have to really think in the deliver deliverables. Once I figured out that for me, what it should look like, then I go to the team, I get the team around and say, it was okay, here's, here's the challenge or the opportunity. Here's the end result that I love, that I want. Forget what they want for a second, what I want it to look like. And this is how I feel we should go about it. What do you think? And then we'll literally sit for sometimes two, three, four days to ideate the program. And then once we all agree on it, we put it in writing, we send it back, they, they sign off it, and we move forward. Done is done. I'm very, I'm very... I mean, my team has been with me for a long time. As I, said, I just told you, 27 years, the one guy, everybody else, 16, 17 years. So they know the process and they know that we, we will only deliver something that's excellent. If it's not excellent, I won't do it. One thing I didn't realize until we had this conversation today, it seems like education is a core fundamental to what you do. You're at the trade show, you're educating, you're teaching people, you're te teaching. It, it, uh, it really didn't come through in, in all my research, uh, that loudly, but it's clear to me speaking with you today that you look at things, if you can teach people how to do things, it positions you in a way, uh, to be valuable, to be a value add. And also you're teaching them probably in a way to either use or incorporate your products or, or whatever that may be. Can you talk a little bit about that? Say? What does the Bible say? Te feed a man a fish, yeah, great meal. Teach a man to fish, you'll eat for the rest of your time. Yeah. And the more you educate people, and that's what I, and, and um, when we don't talk much about what I do with the military because it's, some of it's very secret. Um, and I mean that most sincerely. Um, but what I tried, what I tried to, to do is educate everybody that comes into our circle, not only about our business and about the, the depth that we go to, but the depths that they can go to. Because I sometimes think that CEOs get so focused on initiatives, they forget this outside of those initiatives. There's a lot of great ideation that will, will not only um, build revenue, but also build excitement within the team. Because if you do a nine to five job every day and you ha you, you know, you, you answer a, a telephone or you, you stand at a reception or you, um, sorry, you get bored, you get fed up, you get, you get chewing gums, smoking cigarettes. Oh, I hate this place. I hate this place. But the more you challenge people and I challenge my teams, all of them to learn something new every day, including myself, not just them. 
Um, and that's how we go into business. I mean, we just, we just put technology into fuel pumps that go into gas stations. Well, I'm a chef. I'm also a consumer. But the more you, you, you step outside of your, your comfort zone, and the more you're open-minded, and the more you meet in circles. And most of my, most of my business dealings is so funny. Uh, I do an awful lot of charity with our foundation, Robert Irvine Foundation. I bring a lot of business in. I stand at a bar and I have a tequila or a beer, and somebody will say something to me the next minute. I'm on a plane going to meet them in wherever, talking about a product that they make or, or, or a service they want to give, and they want, want an opinion. You know, just like when you used to clean up houses and restore things, right? You, you, the experience you get from one job to another and the mistakes you make, because believe me, I made a million mistakes and then some, you try not to make those same mistakes twice. And you know, okay, boom, boom, boom. Look, I turned down, I turned down a deal from a company of $8 million because I didn't agree with the company. And they said, oh, just fudge it. Just, you know, just, just do what, do half of what you want. I'm like, no, I won't. It's not about money for me. It's about the name that I leave behind and the people that have to work that system that I put in. Because I don't want them talking about me. You know, I can do that on my own. I don't need to bad mouth myself. But I don't want somebody else to if I'm trying to fix a problem. How do you... Um... To run an organization like you do, you've got to find a way to surround yourself with people that have that growth mindset and that are problem seekers and solvers. Uh, one of the things, so anytime that I speak to the troops and if I reference, let's say I reference your book in, and I, I'll use it or five dysfunctions of a team or, or Covey or anything like that. So I'll speak to the troops and, and then I'll leave 20 or 30 books behind and maybe 10 of them will be picked up or 15 of them will be picked up, but you'll see two or three or four of the people actually take the book, devour it, have it with them, and then apply it. And those are the people that seem to advance because they are intrinsically motivated to solve problems. Regardless, I think there's a connection between, uh, an irrational connection between what people get paid and who they are. And I learned that very early in life because regardless of what I was getting paid, I was on a concrete crew in Chicago and these guys would hide behind the houses for half the day because, and they, and I would, I would work and they'd say, Hey, you're going to get us all in trouble. We've established this pace with which to work. And by you going out there and working harder than us, it's going to show that we're all sandbagging for half the day. And I thought to myself, that is the absolute worst view of life that you could, I want to do my best. I don't care what they're paying me. You know, I want to, I want to work all day or, or get it done in half the time and go do something else and, and connecting that personality. And there's yeah. a difference. Um, there's an old saying, my mother used to tell me, you pay peanuts, you get monkeys, right? Yeah. There is, there is, look, I remember taking my first job at my executive's job at $30,000 because I wanted the experience and I did the same thing. You, you. So the way in which I hire people, my 60, I have six zero um, senior leaders, um, not executive level, six executive level, um, 60 leaders. And if I'm going to hire somebody or they're going to hire somebody, each one of those leaders talks to the person for an hour. And then the last person to talk to the person we want to hire is my wife. Okay. 
because I feel that, that women have more intuition about people than we do, than men do. Yeah, my wife's always right. I'm not kidding. Always. She told me not to hire the three people that I fired. And sure enough, she was right. So I, yeah. I literally said, okay, the last person will be my wife. Had I listened better, I'd have saved a lot of money. I could tell you that. But we're all the same. Uh, I was like, not money, but I would, well, yeah, money, but I would have saved a lot of, uh, a lot of investment in time because I train people, you know, and these three guys went off and started their own company, failed miserably, by the way, but, um, because they didn't have the work ethic. Everybody I have in my company, um, they have work ethic, not because I, we, we set the culture, I take care of everybody but I expect the same of everybody else taking care of everybody else. And if somebody needs something from another company, they don't have to call me. They call the company and they deal with whatever they need. And I think once you set the culture and you hold them accountable, right? Accountability is, is you know, number one for me. Trust, um, resiliency, and, and accountability uh, uh, things that to me are, if you say you're going to do something about this date, don't tell me, oh, I didn't get it done. Don't, worst thing you can do to me, tell me a date and not get it done. I'm, I'm going to be very upset. How many? Because that's what I have to live with. When I set a date with company, I have to make sure that I can achieve that date. How many of your 60 leaders are veterans? Oh, probably. 20, 20, 25. That's got, they understand the program. So yeah, I've got, I've got a guy who was lost his leg in Afghanistan. Um, he runs my clothing company, but also is a big part of my foundation. Dave Reed. Um, I trust him because I taught him. I, I met him. This is how I met him on a yomp, a 54 mile yomp in Scotland. I took a hundred wounded, um, uh, ill and injured veterans. Uh, from America, met up with 900 wounded in Scotland and marched 54 miles um, with Ukrainians, with with uh, Germans, with Italians, all all folks with post-traumatic stress and legs blown off and and, and burns and and I was walking with him uh, 54 miles. I just loved the guy who's five years uh, going to school to be a doctor, and I said, look, just why don't you just follow us for a year? And uh, within that year, I, I hired him. Um, he, he dropped being a doctor to come work with me. Um, now he runs our clothing and we do clothing for the military and our foundation. So I think good people, you know, they say, oh, the cream rises to the top. They really do. If you, you do you spend time with them and you get to know their values and morals and their work ethic, you want people as hungry as you to work with you. Right? Nobody works for me. We work together. I don't set. I don't set. Um, I set the tone and the culture. Um, but everything else is done by the team itself, and I think that's really important. It's, it's like in a kitchen. You know, the military's got a hierarchy. The kitchen has a hierarchy. There's an executive chef, an executive sous chef, sous chefs, cooks, da da da. And and I think that fits really well with me because of my military background, uh, and that's the people are. I, that that know they're self-starters don't want a better words they 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 don't need to be told what to do they already know what to do they may need direction or stuff but they know 
what to do in general. Um, you don't you don't need it, and that's why veterans are such a, a great asset. And by the way, so are spouses, veteran spouses, because they're hardworking. They know the systems. Um, so yeah, Robert, there's a great statement in the front of your book, and. It says, for anyone who has ever looked up at the stars and the night sky, thought of the thing they always wanted most and whispered someday. And uh, uh, that stopped me in my tracks because it's a very visionary statement. And when you look up there today and you look across your empire, you look across the time that you've got left uh, to make, continue to make an impact, uh, what do you see? It's interesting because I wrote that. Uh, that state, that, that paragraph, that saying, um, because I often reflect back, and, and when I reflect back, it's normally where have I come from, which was eating two slices of bread, butter, and, and sugar yeah. five days a week. Um, my dad was a soldier, didn't make any money, um, not an alcoholic, but close to it. But we spend money on alcohol instead of you know, for our family. He was a great dad, by the way, but, you know, that was the way life was. And I look now where I And that's when I wrote that. It was kind of interesting um, because I, we all have dreams. We just don't know how to get there. And I was one of them people. I didn't know where. I had no idea. Um, but I followed my gut, and, and here I am. So I reflect mainly, look, business opportunities come all the time, but what, what is the legacy you leave behind? And that's my biggest thing. I just on my 58th birthday, um, I've got considerable companies and wealth, and I'm I'm comfortable. Um, what what is a legacy? And my legacy is my foundation, where I take care of our men and women, where the Clark Foundation, uh, our first responders, firefighters, police officers. Um, that's my you know, that's everything that we do, a portion of everything, including my TV and my salaries and everything, uh, goes to, to buy wheelchairs and dogs and, and houses, build houses and, and run programs uh, uh, for PTS, psychedelic programs. And all, all the things that we do, if you look at robertirvinefoundation.org, you'll see it. That's the future. That's, you know, look, if I saw one of my companies tomorrow, Merry Christmas for the rest of my life and my kids' life and their kids' life. Um, but what I do with that money is, and I give such a huge amount of money away. I mean, I really do, because it makes me feel good. And if you'd have said to me, you know, 15, when I was 15 years old, oh, by the way, you're going to be worth this much money, you're going to give this much away, I would have laughed at you and probably punched you and you know, thought you were taking the, the mick out of me. But, but I think that's the legacy. Look, we're always going to get business opportunities, but it's how do we change other people's lives one day at a time, a person at a time. And that starts with the people that you work with and that you care about. Um, I'm not saying I, it doesn't cost money to help people. It can be opening the car door, helping somebody across the road, listening to somebody, hugging somebody if they say it's okay, buying groceries at a store cause just, just because, you know, you see that, the food go through the cash register and, and people put it to the side. Um, and I see that more and more. Um, so I, I give you an example of, of this. So I was just at a big, this weekend called, um, a music festival called Ocean's Calling in Maryland. 
Ocean City, Maryland, 100,000 people. So I'm there with OAR, the band, and, and Smollett, and, and all these famous, you know, Rich Sambora and all these people. And I said, you know, we just finished this cooking demo with the bands and whatnot, with 100,000 people. I mean, just mind-blowing. And I, I just turned back to OAR and I said, hey, we should just take a walk on the boardwalk. So we did. And we just walked hundreds. I just, I've never seen so many people in my life in one space. And one of, uh, one of the, the bass players from OIR said, we, you know, we should do something really stupid. I said, what? He said, let's go and buy French fries for all these. There's a line, and there must have been 300 people in this line. And I said, all right, let's go and buy French fries for 300 people. So I went up to the guy. The guy went nuts. I said, hey, here's my credit card. What does it cost for a big bucket French fries 300 times? He's like, well, they may want drinks. I said, no, I'm just buying French fries. They want drinks in back. Here, just take, I don't know, it was like 500, 600. I don't even know what it was. I didn't even look at it. And every one of the people came up to me after that. And I just stood there and I was just, in the moment, we just did this really crazy thing. And then went and bought little stuffed crabs for kids at the next door and, and taffy and, and decided to just hang it out. And the amount of people who just said, thank you, that's the nicest thing somebody's ever done for me. It was the funnest thing I ever did. So we started doing it every day the, of the three days. And I think that's, that's the smile on people's faces. And you see the emotion on the TV show when we give back the restaurant and, and they do great and, and whatever. Um, you see that emotion. Then you see that as simple as it is, giving a piece of tap your french fries and people... And I got up on a stage that night in front of 100,000 people and said, hey, oh, uh, before that, the night, the, the morning after the first couple of nights, I did a, a, what we call Breaking Bread for Heroes. It, so I had all the police officers, firefighters, EMTs that were working the event. I made breakfast for them. Out of 100,000 people in three days, two incidents happened. They never booked anybody. They just walked. Imagine that. And I said, I got up on a stage the next day and I said, 100,000 people are here and you're all having a great time. There's no problems with anybody. Wouldn't it be great if we could take this feeling of this 100,000 people out into the real world every day and feel as good as we feel listening to this music and doing food? That's what I want the legacy to be, is how many people's lives have we changed? And again, whether it be a house, whether it be a wheelchair, whether it be a dog, whether it be a hug, whether it be uh, some food. God puts us on this planet, and people get upset when I say that. Regardless of what religion, somebody puts us on this planet to do something good for somebody. And you don't know what that is. And I'll give you an example, another one, and then I'll, I'll be quiet for a second. But I come out of a pub in Trump Taj Mahal, Atlantic City, I've been there with my executive chef, Shane Cash, who's been with me 27 years, still to this day. And we'd had a couple of drinks after working all day, most of the night. And there were the kids sitting outside the pub on, on the wall. And as, for whatever reason, I just said, where are you staying? What are you doing? And when will you have your last meal? And he said, 
I have nowhere to stay. I haven't had a meal for 12 hours, whatever. I said, well, jump in the car. He could have had an ax. He could have had a, you know, Atlantic City. I took him to a diner close to my house and bought him breakfast and talked to him for two hours from the Dominican Republic. I then found a hotel close to my house. I said, hey, I'm going to put you in a hotel for a week, pay for the hotel. Don't ask me why I did this. I had no idea. To this day, I think it was a divine intervention. But anyway, um, I said, if you need a job, come to me tomorrow at 9 o'clock. Well, at 9 o'clock, he showed So every day, he would come to me and say, I hired him as a dishwasher. Every time he'd come to, day, he'd come to me and say, this should be especially in one of the restaurants. I said, no, here's my books. Here's a computer. Go and look. You need more, whatever. To the point that he was the only one bringing me food and making food and bringing it. And I'm like, this guy is working so hard. So I made him a cook. Then I made him a sous chef. He was a sous chef the whole time I was there. Then I left to open my own companies. Um, he worked on television with me. I brought him on some television shows. He's now the executive chef of Caesars in Atlantic City. Wow. And I, and I, I told him every two days. I, I was there when we painted his first apartment, when he moved into his first apartment, plastered the walls. And yeah, it just... So you ask me a question, I just give you 16 different answers, but, but I think it's people. I think that's what, that's what excites me the most. People. Everybody or many people see clearly the opportunity to do things like this, but so few act. You could have walked right by that gentleman and he would have taken a completely different path. It couldn't have been possibly as good as the one that you helped them on. Some people just need a hand up in their life. And there's a point that I see in, in great entrepreneurs' lives, like yourself, where all of your self-limiting beliefs just fall away. And I don't know if it's a couple of successes that you have in a row, or you get this confidence, or you realize that nothing's fatal, and the upside is everything, and the downside is de minimis. But um, when you see, and, and now you're on, you're on the road 150 days a year, taking action and, and like one great thing after another is just, it's, it's happening. And, uh, it's, it's a powerful yeah, lesson for people. I'm, I'm a mitigating risk type of guy. I'm on the road 345 days a year, 150 just with the military. Mm -hmm. So I'm project with the military right now of, of, of helping them modernize their, their, uh, food system. Um, but I think it's, it's mitigated risk. Look, you, you assess the risk on everything I do because that's, yes, I've had some wins. I've had some, and I talk about L's and L's and W's. In the right. Bank, right. You just need one W. You just need one W to make it all worthwhile. <laughs> that's right. And it, no matter how, and, it, and here's the funny thing, Jeff, it does not matter how big that win is. As long as, as, long as it's a win and the loss is the L's, as I write in the book, the L's don't exceed the W's, you're okay, right? But, but again, you've got to be able to learn from your mistakes. And I, look, I, am, I am not the, the messiah of business. I am not there. I have made more mistakes than um, I can care to remember. But those mistakes have been learning opportunities for me. Of, you know, oh, don't do that again, or don't listen to that, or don't next time do this, right? So I think... All entrepreneurs, regardless of what business, the restaurant business, the, the flower business, the fuel business, 
um, you really got to understand the business, assess it before you go and get into it. You know, I people all the time, oh, I make the best meatballs. I make the best this. I'm going to open a restaurant. And, I, and I'm like, oh, I wouldn't do that, you know, because a $1.2 million restaurant is going to give you $90,000 at the end of it. And you're going to work 160 hours. Is it worth it? And by the way, you're going to be calling me at three point, you know, $350,000 in debt in six months. And, I, and by the way, the most I had a restaurant in debt is $1.1 million. And it, it took them eight years to turn it around. Now they do $3.4 million a year and very successful. Brilliant. But, you know, I just think everybody thinks life is easy and you don't have to work at it. And just like you were saying about the concrete workers, right? Oh, it's just you're making us look bad. Well, guess what? I'm going to make every one of you look bad unless you're going to jump on board just like yourself. I think we owe it to, to families that we employ. And this is, this is something that's really big with me. Being loyal to the people that are loyal to you, right? Whatever the needs are. Yeah. Right. My job is not to hold you back. My job is to build you up. And if there's an opportunity comes along that is better for you than I can give you at this time, I, I'm the first one to say, get out, go and do it. There's always, the door's always open here. Whenever you want to come back. And by the way, I've had them do it a thousand times. Right. You know, but I encourage that because I want to, I want them to see something different. Yeah, companies sometimes fall into the trap of treating loyal people in such a way that they no longer care, and they're squandering an asset. Um, when I sold my business after 24 years, I had nine people that have been with me for over 20 years. Many of them have come back. I mean, the, the, you know, or I've supported them in going to do something else. It's, it's one of the proudest things that I have is the fact that you know people started with me right out of school. I grew up here, learned it, and now they're doing great things elsewhere. And uh, it's, um, you can do well by doing good. You know, it's uh, Absolutely. doing the people like, piece well, man. Like you were saying, you know, with franchises, you've got to understand the business before you spend, you know, a million or, or whatever on a franchise. I mean, a McDonald's franchise is 1.9 million right mm -hmm. now, right? Or a Chick-fil-A or whatever. You know, you better understand it before you get into it. Yeah. Absolutely. Robert, this has been amazing. Uh, I really appreciate what you shared today. I've learned a lot. I know that our listeners have. If you had one sentence, one go-to sentence to make an impact in someone's life, what would that be? Well, it's, it's not a sentence. It's more of a, more of a listen, learn, enjoy, and question. That's what I would say. And question at the right time. You know, when somebody says to you to do something in company, don't question them at that point. Do what they ask and then ask, why do we do it that way? You know, if, if you feel there's a better way of doing it. You know, I think the respect then will garner as your company grows with you and you grow with it. But uh, I, I would say, yeah, listen, learn, have fun and ask questions. They're my four, four of guiding principles. Awesome. Thank you. And if people wanted to keep up with you uh, for all the things that are going on, where would you direct them to look? Oh, I have uh, um, on Twitter. I, I'm very, I do my own Twitter. You'll know it's me, at Robert Irvine. Um, 
then we have uh, at Shepherd of mine on Instagram. Um, you go on LinkedIn, you'll see Robert Irvine. I mean, there's no way you can't find me. That's right. My life, a public book. <laughs> um, you'll see where I am. Um, but I would encourage those uh, are listening or watching, just be true to who you are. Don't try and be something you're not. And learn, have fun doing it, and take care of other people while you do it. Awesome. Robert, thanks for being on the home front today. Appreciate you, Jeff. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And as always, this podcast is brought to you by Homefront Brands, building the world's most responsible franchise platform, encouraging entrepreneurs, and helping uh, with education of children and transitioning U.S. veterans into civilian life. This sounds like something you'd like to get involved with. Check us out at homefrontbrands.com today and start your next chapter of greatness, building your dynasty on the home front, and I will be here looking for you. Thank you for listening.